53, e discussed at length, Buddhist texts, the canonical books. It is necessary to remember that the Buddha, like other Indian teachers of his period, taught by conversation only, a highly educated man according to the education current at the time, speaking constantly to men of similar education. He followed the literary habit of his day by embodying his doctrines in set phrases as sutras, on which he enlarged, on different occasions, in different ways. Writing was then widely known, but the lack of suitable writing materials made any lengthy books impossible. Such as sutras were therefore the recognized form of preserving and communicating opinion. They were catchwords, as it were, memoria technica, which could easily be remembered and would recall the fuller expositions that had been based upon them. Shortly after the Buddha's time the Brahmins had their sutras in Sanskrit, already a dead language. He purposely put his into the ordinary conversational idiom of the day, that is to say, into Pioli. When the Buddha died these sayings were collected together by his disciples into a what they call the Fornicaeus, or, collections. These cannot have reached their final form till about fifty or sixty years afterwards. Other sayings and verses, most of them ascribed, not to the Buddha, but to the disciples themselves, were put into a supplementary Nikaya. We know V.04P.0691 of slight additions made to this Nikaya as late as the time of Asoka, 3rd century BC, and the developed doctrine, found in certain portions of it, shows that these are later than the four old Nikayas, for a generation or two the books so put together were handed down by memory, though probably written memoranda were also used and they were doubtless accompanied from the first, as they were being taught, by a running commentary. About one hundred years after the Buddha's death there was a schism in the community. Each of the two schools kept an arrangement of the canon still in Pioli, or some allied dialect. Sanskrit was not used for any Buddhist work still long afterwards, and never used at all, so far as is known, for the canonical books. Each of these two schools broke up in the following centuries, into others. Several of them had their different arrangements of the canonical books, differing also in minor details. These books remained the only authorities for about five centuries, but they all, except only our extant Pioli Nikayas, have been lost in India. These then are our authorities for the earliest period of Buddhism. Now what are these books? We talk necessarily of Pioli books. They are not books in the modern sense. They are memorial sentences or verses intended to be learnt by heart and the whole style and method of arrangement is entirely subordinated to this primary necessity. Each asutra pioli, sutta is very short, usually occupying only a page, or perhaps two, and containing a single proposition. When several of these, almost always those that contain propositions of a similar kind, are collected together in the framework of one dialogue, it is called a salanda. The usual length of such a sutta is about a dozen pages, only a few of them are longer and a collection of such suttas might be called a book, but it is as yet neither narrative nor essay, it is at most a string of passages, drawn up in similar form to assist the memory, and intended, not to be read, but to be learnt by heart, the first of the four Nikayas is a collection of the longest of these suttas, and it is called accordingly the Diida Nikaya, that is, the collection of long ones, side, suttas, the next is the Majima Nikaya, the collection of the suttas of medium length, medium, that island as being shorter than the suttas in the Diida, and longer than the ordinary suttas preserved in the two following collections. Between them these first two collections contain 186 dialogues, in which the Buddha, or in a few cases one of his leading disciples, 
is represented as engaged in conversation on some one of the religious, or philosophic, or ethical points in that system which we now call Buddhism, in depth of philosophic insight, in the method of Socratic questioning often adopted, in the earnest and elevated tone of the whole, in the evidence they afford of the most cultured thought of the day. These dialogues constantly remind the reader of the dialogues of Plato, but not in style. They had indeed a style of their own, always dignified, and occasionally rising into eloquence, but for the reasons already given, it is entirely different from the style of Western writings which are always intended to be read. Historical scholars will, however, revere this collection of dialogues as one of the most priceless of the treasures of antiquity still preserved to us. It is to it, above all, that we shall always have to go for our knowledge of the most ancient Buddhism, of the 186. 175 had by 1907 been edited for the Pioli Text Society, and the remainder were either in the press or in preparation, a disadvantage of the arrangement in dialogues, more especially as they follow one another according to a length and not according to subject, is that it is not easy to find the statement of doctrine on any particular point which is interesting one at the moment, it is very likely just this consideration which led to the compilation of the two following Nikayas, in the first of these called the Anguttara Nikaya, all those points of Buddhist doctrine capable of expression in classes are set out in order, this practically includes most of the psychology and ethics of Buddhism, for it is a distinguishing mark of the dialogues themselves that the results arrived at are arranged in carefully systematized groups, we are familiar enough in the West with similar classifications, summed up in such expressions as the seven deadly sins, the ten commandments, the thirty-nine articles, the four cardinal virtues, the seven sacraments and a host of others. These numbered lists it is true are going out of fashion. The aid which they afford to memory is no longer required in an age in which books of reference abound. It was precisely as a help to memory that they were found so full in the early Buddhist times, when the books were all learnt by heart, and had never as yet been written. And in the Anguttara we find set out in order first of all the units, then all the pairs, then all the trios, and so on. It is the longest book in the Buddhist Bible and fills 1840 pages 8 though. The whole of the Pioli text has been published by the Pioli Text Society, but only portions have been translated into English. The next, and last, of these four collections contains again the whole, or nearly the whole, of the Buddhist doctrine, but arranged this time in order of subjects. It consists of 55 same yudas or groups. In each of these the suttas on the same subject, or in one or two cases the suttas addressed to the same sort of people are grouped together, the whole of it has been published in five volumes by the Pioli Text Society, only a few fragments have been translated, many hundreds of the short suttas and verses in these two collections are found, word for word, in the dialogues, and there are numerous instances of the introductory story stating how, and when, and to whom the sutta was enunciated a sort of narrative framework in which the sutta is set recurring also. This is very suggestive as to the way in which the earliest Buddhist records were gradually built up. The suttas came first embodying, in set phrases, the doctrine that had to be handed down, those episodes, found in two or three different places, and always embodying several suttas, came next. Then several of these were woven together to form a sutta, and finally the suttas were grouped together into the two nikayas, and the suttas and episodes separately into the two others, parallel with this evolution. So to say, of the suttas, the short statements of doctrine, in prose, ran the treatment of the verses. There was a great love of poetry in the communities in which Buddhism arose, 
verses were helpful to the memory, and they were adopted not only for this reason, the adherents of the new view of life found pleasure in putting into appropriate verse the feelings of enthusiasm and of ecstasy which the reforming doctrines inspired, when particularly happy in literary finish, or peculiarly rich in religious feeling, such verses were not lost, these were handed on, from mouth to mouth, in the small companies of the brethren or sisters, the oldest verses are all lyrics, expressions either of emotion, or of some deep saying, some pregnant thought, very few of them have been preserved alone, and even then they are so difficult to understand, so much like puzzles, that they were probably accompanied from the first by a sort of comment in prose, stating when, and why, and by whom they were supposed to have been uttered. As a general rule such a framework in prose is actually preserved in the old Buddhist literature. It is only in the very latest books included in the canon that the narrative part is also regularly in verse, so that a whole work consists of a collection of ballads. The last step, that of combining such ballads into one long epic poem, was not taken till after the canon was closed. The whole process, from the simple anecdote in mixed prose and verse, the so-called Akechiana, to the complete epic, comes out with striking clearness in the history of the Buddhist canon. It is typical, one may notice in passing, of the evolution of the epic elsewhere, in Iceland, for instance, in Persia and in Greece. And we may safely draw the conclusion that if the great Indian epics, the Mahabhyacharata and the Aramayana, had been in existence when the formation of the Buddhist canon began, the course of its development would have been very different from what it was, as will easily be understood. The same reasons which led to a literary activity of this kind, in the earliest period, continued to hold good afterwards. A number of such efforts, after the Nikayas had been closed, were included in a supplementary Nikaya called the Kuddaka Nikaya. It will throw very full light upon the intellectual level in the Buddhist community just V.04P.0692 after the earliest period, and upon literary life in the valley of the Ganges in the 4th or 5th century BC if we briefly explain what the tractates in this collection contain. The first, the Kuddaka Piva, is a little tract of only a few pages, after a profession of faith in the Buddha, the doctrine and the order. There follows a paragraph setting out the 34 constituents of the human body bones, blood, nerves and so on strangely incongruous with what follows, for that is simply a few of the most beautiful poems to be found in the Buddhist scriptures. There is no apparent reason, except their exquisite versification, why these particular pieces should have been here brought together. It is most probable that this tiny volume was simply a sort of first lesson book for young neophytes when they joined the order. In any case that is one of the uses to which it is put at present. The textbook is the Dhammapada. Here are brought together from 10 to 20 stanzas on each of 26 selected points of Buddhist self-training or ethics. There are altogether 423 verses, gathered from various older sources, and strung together without any other internal connection in that they relate more or less to the same subject, and the collector has not thought it necessary to choose stanzas written in the same meter, or in the same number of lines. We know that the early Christians were accustomed to sing hymns, both in their homes and on the occasions of their meeting together. These hymns are now irretrievably lost. Had someone made a collection of about 20 isolated stanzas, chosen from these hymns, on each of about 20 subjects such as faith, hope, love, the converted man, times of trouble, quiet days, the Savior, the tree of life, the sweet name, the dove, the king, the land of peace. The joy unspeakable we should have a Christian Dhammapada, and very precious such a collection would be. 
The Buddhist Dhammapada has been edited by Professor Fausboil Second Education 1900, and has been frequently translated, where the verses deal with those ideas that are common to Christians and Buddhists. The versions are easily intelligible, and some of the stanzas appeal very strongly to the Western sense of religious beauty, where the stanzas are full of the technical terms of the Buddhist system of self-culture and self-control. It is often impossible, without expansions that spoil the poetry or learn notes that distract the attention, to convey the full sense of the original, in all these distinctively Buddhist verses the existing translations of which Professor Max Müller's is the best known, and Dr. Karl Neumann's the best are inadequate and sometimes quite erroneous, the connection in which they were spoken is often apparent in the more ancient books from which these verses have been taken, and has been preserved in the commentary on the work itself, in the next little work the framework, the whole paraphernalia of the ancient Akiyana, is included in the work itself, which is called Adana, or, ecstatic utterances, the Buddha is represented, on various occasions during his long career, to have been so much moved by some event, or speech, or action, that he gave vent, as it were, to his pent-up feelings in a short, ecstatic utterance, couched, for the most part, in one or two lines of poetry, these outbursts, very terse and enigmatic, are charged with religious emotion, and turn often on some subtle point of a ray hardship, that island of the Buddhist ideal of life. The original text has been published by the Pioli Text Society. The little book, a garland of fifty of these gems, has been translated by General Strong. The next work is called the Itivataka. This contains 120 short passages, each of them leading up to a terse deep saying of the Buddhas, and introduced, in each case with the words Itivatam Bhagavale, thus was it spoken by the Exalted One. These anecdotes may or may not be historically accurate. It is quite possible that the memory of the early disciples, highly trained as it was, enabled them to preserve a substantially true record of some of these speeches, and of the circumstances in which they were uttered. Some or all of them may also have been invented. In either case they are excellent evidence of the sort of questions on which discussions among the earliest Buddhists must have turned. These ecstatic utterances and deep sayings are attributed to the Buddha himself, and accompanied by the prose framework. There has also been preserved a collection of stanzas ascribed to his leading followers. Of these 107 are brethren, and 73 sisters, in the order. The prose framework is in this case preserved only in the commentary, which also gives biographies of the authors. This work is called the Thravir Igatha. Another interesting collection is the Jayataka book. A set of verses supposed to have been uttered by the Buddha in some of his previous births. These are really 550 of the folk tales current in India when the canon was being formed. The only thing Buddhist about them being that the Buddha, in a previous birth, is identified in each case with the hero in the little story. Here again the prose is preserved only in the commentary, and it is a most fortunate chance that this the oldest, the most complete and the most authentic collection of folklore extant has thus been preserved intact to the present day. Many of these stories and fables have wandered to Europe, and are found in medieval homilies, poems and storybooks. A full account of this curious migration will be found in the introduction to the present writer's Buddhist birth stories. A translation of the whole book is now published, under the editorship of Professor Cowell, at the Cambridge University Press. The last of these poetical works which it is necessary to mention is the Suddhanipata, containing 55 poems, all except the last merely short lyrics, many of great beauty. A very ancient commentary on the bulk of these poems has been included in the canon as a separate work.
The poems themselves have been translated by Professor Fausboyle in the Sacred Books of the East. The above works are our authority for the philosophy and ethics of the earliest Buddhists. We have also a complete statement of the rules of the order in the Vinaya, edited, in five volumes, by Professor Oldenburg. Three volumes of translations of these rules, by him and by the present writer, have also appeared in the Sacred Books of the East. There had also been added to the canonical books seven works on Antidema. A more elaborate and more classified exposition of the Dimor doctrine is set out in the Nicaeus. All these works are later, only one of them has been translated, the so-called Dimasamgani. The introduction to this translation, published under the title of Buddhist Psychology, contains the fullest account that has yet appeared of the psychological conceptions on which Buddhist ethics are throughout based. The translator, Mrs. Caroline R. H. East Davids, estimates the date of this ancient manual for Buddhist students as the 4th century B.C. Later works, so far the canon almost all of which is now accessible to readers of Pioli, but a good deal of work is still required before the harvest of historical data contained in these texts shall have been made acceptable to students of philosophy and sociology. These works of the oldest period, the two centuries and a half, between the Buddha's time and that of Asoka, were followed by a voluminous literature in the following periods from Asoka to Kanishka, and from Kanishka to Budaghusa, each of about three centuries. Many of these works are extant in this, but only five or six of the more important have so far been published. Of these the most interesting is the Melinda, one of the earliest historical novels preserved to us. It is mainly religious and philosophical and purports to give the discussion, extending over several days, in which a Buddhist elder named Anagasana succeeds in converting Melinda, that is Menander, the famous Greek king of Bactria, to Buddhism. The P.O.L.E. text has been edited and the work translated into English. More important historically, though greatly inferior in style and ability, is the Mahavastu or sublime story. In Sanskrit, the story is the one of chief importance to the Buddhists the story, namely, of how the Buddha won, under the bow tree, the victory over ignorance, and attained to the Sambodhi, the higher wisdom, of Nirvana. The story begins with his previous births, in which also he was accumulating the Buddha qualities. And as the Mahavastu was a standard work of a particular sect, or rather school, called the Mahasanghikas, it has thus preserved for us the theory of the Buddha as held outside the followers of the canon, by those whose views developed, in after centuries, into the Mahayana or modern form of Buddhism in India. But this book, like all the ancient books, was composed, not in the north, in Nepal, but in the valley of the Ganges and it is partly v.04p.0693 in prose, partly in verse, to other works, the Lalita Vistara and the Buddha Karita, give us but this, of course, is later Sanskrit poems, epics, on the same subject, of these, the former may be as old as the Christian era, the latter belongs to the second century after Christ, both of them have been edited and translated, the older one contains still a good deal of prose, the gist of it being often repeated in the verses, the later one is entirely in verse, and shows off the author's mastery of the artificial rules of prosody and poetics, according to which a poem, a Kavya, ought, according to the later writers on the Ars Poetica, to be composed. These three works deal only quite briefly and incidentally with any point of Buddhism outside of the Buddha legend. Of greater importance for the history of Buddhism are two later works, the Nadipakarana and the Sadharmapundaraika, the former, in Pioli discusses a number of questions then of importance in the Buddhist community, and it relies throughout, as does the Melinda, 
on the canonical works, which it quotes largely, the latter, in Sanskrit, is the earliest exposition we had of the later Mahayana doctrine. Both these books may be dated in the second or third century of our era. The latter has been translated into English. We have now also the text of the Prajnapiranatao later treatise on the Mahayana system, which in time entirely replaced in India the original doctrines. To about the same age belongs also the Daiti of Adana, a collection of legends about the leading disciples of the Buddha, and important members of the order, through the subsequent three centuries. These legends are, however, of different dates, and in spite of the comparatively late period at which it was put into its present form, it contains some very ancient fragments. The whole of the above works were composed in the north of India, that is to say, either north or a few miles south of the Ganges. The record is at present full of gaps, but we can even now obtain a full and accurate idea of the earliest Buddhism, and are able to trace the main lines of its development through the first eight or nine centuries of its career. The Pioli Text Society is still publishing two volumes a year, and the Russian Academy has inaugurated a series to contain the most important of the Sanskrit works still buried in MS. We have also now accessible in Pioli 14 volumes of the commentaries of the great 5th century scholars in South India and Ceylon, most of them the works either of Budaghusa of Budgaya, or of Dimapala of Kaunsipura the ancient name of Kanjimaram. These are full of important historical data on the social, as well as the religious, life of India during the periods of which they treat. Modern research the striking archaeological discoveries of recent years have both confirmed and added to our knowledge of the earliest period. Preeminent among these is the discovery, by Mr. William Pepp, on the Birdpur estate, adjoining the boundary between English and Nepalese territory, of the street Yupon, or Cairn, erected by the Esakia clan over their share of the ashes from the cremation pyre of the Buddha. About 12 meters to the northeast of the spot has been found an inscribed pillar put up by Ahsoka as a record of his visit to the Lumbinaya Garden, as the place where the future Buddha had been born. Although more than two centuries later than the event to which it refers, this inscription is good evidence of the site of the garden. There had been no interruption of the tradition, and it is probable that the place was then still occupied by the descendants of the possessors in the Buddha's time. Northwest of this another Ahsoka pillar has been discovered, recording his visit to the cairn erected by the Sakyas over the remains of Kanagamana one of the previous Buddhas or teachers, whose follower Gautama the Buddha had claimed to be. These discoveries definitely determine the district occupied by the Esakia Republic in the 6th and 7th centuries BC. The boundaries, of course, are not known, but the clan must have spread 30 meters or more along the lower slopes of the Himalayas and 30 meters or more southwards over the plains. It has been abandoned jungle since the 3rd century AD or perhaps earlier, so that the ruined sites numerous through the whole district, have remained undisturbed, and further discoveries may be confidently expected. The principal points on which this large number of older and better authorities has modified our knowledge are as follows. 1. We have learned that the division of Buddhism, originating with Purnuth, into northern and southern, is misleading. He found that the Buddhism in his Peolianesis, which came from Ceylon, differed from that in his Sanskrit Emesis, which came from Nepal. Now that the works he used have been made accessible in printed editions, we find that, wherever the existing emesis, came from, the original works themselves were all composed in the same stretch of country, that island in the valley of the Ganges. The difference of the opinions expressed in the emesis, is due, not to the place where they are now found, but to the difference of time at which they were originally composed. 
Not one of the books mentioned above is either northern nor southern. They all claim, and rightly claim, to belong, so far as their place of origin is concerned, to the Majimadisa, the Middle Country. It is undesirable to base the main division of our subject on an adventitious circumstance, and especially so when the nomenclature thus introduced it is not found in the books themselves cuts right across the true line of division. The use of the terms northern and southern is applied, not to the existing emesis, but to the original books, or to the Buddhism they teach, not only does not help us, it is the source of serious misunderstanding, it inevitably leads careless writers to take for granted that we have, historically, two Buddhisms one manufactured in Ceylon, the other in Nepal, now this is admittedly wrong, what we have to consider is Buddhism varying through slight degrees, as the centuries pass by, in almost every book, we may call it one, or we may call it many, what is quite certain is that it is not two, and the most full distinction to emphasize island not the ambiguous and misleading geographical one derived from the places where the modern copies of the Emesis, are found, nor even, though that would be better, the linguistic one but the chronological one, the use, therefore, of the inaccurate and misleading terms northern and southern ought no longer to be followed in scholarly works on Buddhism, too, our ideas as to the social conditions that prevailed, during the Buddha's lifetime, in the eastern valley of the Ganges have been modified, the people were divided into clans, many of them governed as republics, more or less aristocratic, in a few cases several of such republics had formed confederations, and in four cases such confederations had already become hereditary monarchies, the right historical analogy is not the state of Germany in the Middle Ages, but the state of Greece in the time of Socrates, the Essequias were still a republic. They had republics for their neighbors on the east and south, but on the western boundary was the kingdom of Kosala, the modern Oud, which they acknowledged as a suzerain power. The Buddha's father was not a king. There were Arjas in the clan, but the word meant at most something like consul or archon. All the four real kings were called Maharaja, and Sadodna, the teacher's father, was not even Arja. One of his cousins, named Badia, is styled Arja. But Sadodna is spoken of, like other citizens, as Sadodna the Essakian, as the ancient books are very particular on this question of titles, this is decisive. 3. There was no caste no caste, that island in the modern sense of the term. We have long known that the connubium was the cause of a long and determined struggle between the patricians and the plebeians in Rome. Evidence has been yearly accumulating on the existence of restrictions as to intermarriage and as to the right of eating together common solidity among other Aryan tribes, Greeks, Germans, Russians and so on, even without the fact of the existence now of such restrictions among the modern successors of the ancient Aryans in India, it would have been probable that they also were addicted to similar customs. It is certain that the notion of such usages was familiar enough to some at least of the tribes that preceded the Aryans in India. Rules of endogamy and exogamy, privileges, restricted to certain classes, of eating together, are not only Indian or Aryan, but worldwide phenomena, both the spirit, and to a large degree the actual details, of modern Indian caste usages are identical v.04p.0694 with these ancient, and no doubt universal, customs, it is in them that we have the key to the origin of caste, at any moment in the history of a nation such customs seem, to a superficial observer, to be fixed and immutable. As a matter of fact they are never quite the same in successive centuries, or even generations. The numerous and complicated details which we sum up under the convenient, but often misleading, single name of caste, 
are solely dependent for their sanction on public opinion. That opinion seems stable, but it is always tending to vary as to the degree of importance attached to some particular one of the details, as to the size and complexity of the particular groups in which each detail ought to be observed, owing to the fact that the particular group that in India worked its way to the top, based its claims on religious grounds, not on political power, nor on wealth. The system has, no doubt, lasted longer in India than in Europe, but public opinion still insists, in considerable circles even in Europe, on restrictions of a more or less defined kind, both as to marriage and as to eating together, and in India the problem still remains to trace, in the literature, the gradual growth of the system the gradual formation of new sections among the people, the gradual extension of the institution to the families of people engaged in certain trades, belonging to the same group or sect, or tribe, tracing their ancestry, whether rightly or wrongly, to the same source, all these factors, and others besides, are real factors, but they are phases of the extension and growth, not explanations of the origin of the system, there is no evidence to show that at the time of the rise of Buddhism there was any substantial difference, as regards the barriers in question, between the peoples dwelling in the valley of the Ganges and their contemporaries, Greek or Roman dwelling on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea, the point of greatest weight in the establishment of the subsequent development, the supremacy in India of the priests, was still being hotly debated, all the new evidence tends to show that the struggle was being decided rather against than for the Brahmins, what we find in the Buddha's time is cast in the making, the great mass of the people were distinguished quite roughly into four classes, social strata, of which the boundary lines were vague and uncertain, at one end of the scale were certain outlying tribes and certain hereditary crafts of a dirty or despised kind, at the other end the nobles claimed the superiority, but Brahmins by birth not necessarily sacrificial priests, for they followed all sorts of occupations were trying to oust the nobles from the highest grade, they only succeeded, long afterwards, when the power of Buddhism had declined, for, it had been supposed on the authority of late priestly texts, where boasts of persecution are put forth, that the cause of the decline of Buddha, 